is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon, Georgia Hargreaves here with you for the Country Hour today. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you on board this Friday afternoon. Shortly, I'll be checking in with a licensed dogger in WA's Eastern Wheatbelt who says bureaucratic restrictions are making his job more and more difficult. And a bit later, you're going to meet a southwest orchardist who's using lasers to keep the birds off his trees. When we first installed it last year, it's a very strange thing. Like, there'll be birds today, you install it, you start it, and then there's no birds. And it's, it's so noticeable to see there's not a, a single parrot, nothing. Make sure you stick around to hear that story. And, of course, just before the news at one, we'll be wrapping up the week in wool with Danny Burkett. Six past 12 on the Country Hour and a new free trade agreement with India was passed through Federal Parliament in Australia this week. As you heard on the Country Hour yesterday, it's considered good news for Australia's rock lobster industry and potentially for our wine industry. Adam Dawes is the manager of Wool Producers Australia and thinks the FTA will be good for the wool industry because it should reduce tariffs and lead to more investment. Yeah, so in relation to wool, the deal that the FTA can offer us is the elimination of a number of tariffs that sit on our greasy wool and wool exports. And currently at the moment, greasy wool exports, which are the bulk of our exports to India, are subject to a 2.5% tariff. And once the FTA comes into effect, those tariffs will instantly be removed to zero. Okay, so will the wool industry benefit from this? I think we will. Um, One of the important things to understand is that whilst we're currently subject to a 2.5% tariff for the export of our greasy wool to India, the tariff level has varied. And in recent years, talking to some exporters, that level of tariff has been as high as 17%. And having that variable tariff really applies some limitations on how Indian wool processors are able to participate in our market and the competitiveness in our market. I think what we've got is the elimination of that variable tariff will provide some certainty for them to participate more constructively or, or more actively in our open cry auction process. And as a longer-term knock-on effect, it might create the environment upon which they can expand their processing capacity so that they can start to take more of our wool. Mm, so to capitalise on an FTA, what's actually needed? Yeah, so um, I guess at the moment, Many of your listeners would have heard that we've got an interim agreement that's been reached and that interim agreement was subject to processes to pass, I guess, through legislative processes in Australia and India, respectively. Going forward, once both of those processes have happened, as you've said, um, the Australian process is all but done, um, then there'll be the establishment of some timeframes for when the FTA can come into effect. We're hopeful that that can happen at some stage in the first half of 2023. So if we look at Australia specifically, what is our industry here doing to capitalise on this FDA, Adam? Yeah, so we've been working with the, I guess, officers in the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, and we're looking to try and establish a joint India-Australia wool industry working group. And what that working group's looking to do is to identify shared opportunities where we can collaborate to strengthen the relationship that we've got, the trading relationship that we've got between our two countries. So we're actually hoping to try and get that process started 
very early in 2023 with the aim to really strengthen, identify opportunities and capitalise on those once in particular the FTA comes into effect. And while I've got you, Adam, what else is on the horizon for the wool industry as far as, you know, reducing Australia's reliance on China? Yeah, so look, I think um, what we've identified is that, you know, we've got a great relationship with the Chinese industry. They're the most significant buyers of our wool, generally taking 80 to 90% of the product. What we've identified recently is that, you know, as, as your listeners would have heard in an earlier interview that we've done, that the Australian industry faces a number of risks and some are associated with reliance of processing in that single market. Some of those risks come about through emergency animal disease outbreaks. We saw a fairly significant impact on the ability of our South African colleagues to export wool following recent outbreaks of foot and mouth disease that they had. And we've also seen some limitations and supply chain disruptions in recent years in particular due to processing shutdowns and due to limitations, availability and cost of freight. Um, so, you know, the ability to get more wool processed in diverse markets like India helps mitigate some of that risk and make sure that the global supply chain can keep using wool and getting it through to retail consumers. Wool producers Australia manager Adam Dawes talking about how the free trade agreement between India and Australia should be a good thing for our wool industry. And I wonder, are you excited about that FTA with India? Send me a text. The number is the usual one, 0448 922604. That number again is 0448 922604. And even if you're not interested in the FTA, please send me a text anyway because this is my first time presenting the Country Hour and I'm a bit nervous. I want to make sure you're all out there and send me some reassuring texts. It is 10 past 12. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development has confirmed it has detected virulent foot rot in a ram imported from the eastern states. The detection was picked up as part of routine post-border inspection of sheep and goats entering Western Australia. Deepard didn't put anyone up to chat about it today, which is a shame, but we were issued a statement saying Deepard is working with the owner of the infected ram and the property that received the animal is currently under a pest control notice. Deepard is tracing all the sheep that travelled in the same truck to make sure they don't have foot rot. The the Deepard statement goes on to say the producer at the property has done the right thing followed all the recommended biosecurity protocols, including keeping imported animals separate from the home flock. 12 past six here on the Country Hour. And a licensed pest management technician who controls wild dogs in Western Australia's eastern wheat belt says his job is being made increasingly difficult due to bureaucratic restrictions. Stuart McEwen has been a dogger for more than 15 years, using the state barrier fence as the focus of his baiting, trapping and shooting activities. But he says he's just been advised he'll no longer be allowed to use firearms within 20 metres of the fence. Nobody has come out and spoke to us about it. There has been no consultation in any way, shape or form. This is just one of those knee-jerk reactions that somebody with a magic pencil has just decided one day that, oh, We've got an issue and uh, we're going to stop the doggers because we're the ones that carry the firearms. 
in 50 or 60 years at the fence, there's been no issues. I've been on this fence for 16 years. We're very, very careful. We're aware that we're using firearms. So we take the highest, highest control to minimise any sort of uh, neglect on our behalf for firearms use. What sort of things do you do? Do you look around to see if there's anyone nearby? On state barrier fences, a 20-metre strip. So if there's fresh tracks on the, on the fence, it's either somebody that's either it's an illegal person on the fence or it's a contractor. Unfortunately, we've got contractors which are employed by the Department of constantly failing to do their duty of care or giving us a ring. So we're always aware that there could be somebody there. But 90% of the time, you've got a dog somewhere, it's just off the edge of the fence, uh, in the bush line, and it's clear to shoot, so we shoot. In the letter, the department says there is increasing traffic on the fence, as you've mentioned, and it is DPIRD's responsibility to ensure that the work site is safe for all approved permit holders. Firearms, they are dangerous. Is it reasonable that the department needs to, to make this change to keep people safe? No, it's not reasonable. The simple fact is that we're employed through the department, because the department 30 years ago sacked all the doggers and let this dog problem get out of hand to the point where the dogs were overwhelming the farmers. So we've come in as, as contractors through dog groups. The, the responsibility is, is on us to make sure that we are safe. It's not the department's uh, responsibility because we're the ones that control the, uh, the firearm and what we do. So... We are responsible. So we're not going to go endangering other people or our own selves or any department officials or contractors by doing something reckless. What do you think needs to happen to be able to keep people safe and also effectively control dogs along the fence? Departments never prosecuted anybody for being on that fence. They talk tough. By the end of the day, they're, they're very weak. And instead of imposing a few fines and making a couple of examples, nobody wants to be the bad guy. But uh, as I said, the, the general public have been extremely good on the, on the state barrier fence. I can't complain. Several years ago, uh, traffic was really heavy. In the last couple of years, it's been really good. So realistically, nothing should be changed. You know, we're not out there blazing guns away left, right and centre. So there is no issue with us shooting down the fence. You've been restricted from other control measures close to the fence as well? Trapping. We're not allowed to trap. Our traps are clearly signed. We put two signs either side of them within a certain distance. Once you've seen what a trap set looks like, it's got plenty of dog feces there and, and it's really musky and there's always bones, dead animal, you know, dead foxes and cats and, and dogs sitting there that we use trapped in there that we've lured in there through, the, through using uh, the controls. We are. We were speechless when the fencing contractor made this complaint that he'd stepped in this trap because it's clearly marked and uh, they banned us from trapping. So we're missing our two major elements, trapping and shooting. Baiting doesn't always work. You know, you can't get there and go, sit boy, sit boy, and drive 200 k's up, get some baits, drive 200 k's back down there, expect a dog to still be there to take a bait. The fence was put in for the simple fact is that for us, the dog is to be able to work along and there are two main elements of shooting and trapping have been removed. Anybody that's on the west side of the fence, from Esperance all the way up, any farmer needs to be concerned about this because uh, we're not being able to do our job. We're being hamstrung by a department with a man with a magic pencil. 
Stuart McEwen. He's a dogger operating in the eastern wheat belt. He was speaking to Lucinda Jose. Mia Carbon is the head of biosecurity for the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. She says these recent changes were necessary to keep people safe, which is always the number one priority. In recent years, uh, travel along the State Barrier Fence Reserve has uh, increased largely in part due to the department's expanded uh, maintenance and, and upgrade program, and that has seen more, more contractors as well as more activity from government agencies um, along that fence. In a really big step forward for managing the impacts of wild dogs in, in the state, the entire uh, state barrier fence is now maintained to a wild dog standard, which is a, a great step forward. But obviously to maintain the fence at such a standard requires a lot more frequent inspections and, and follow-up maintenance work and that's largely undertaken by contractors and, and departmental staff. So in light of all of this, the department conducted a review on the use of firearms along the fence reserve, um, which showed us that there was an elevated occupational health and safety risk. And, and obviously in that case, you know, we have to take steps to reduce any risk to, to human life. Obviously, animal welfare is also a priority for the department and, you know, if we get occasions where animals are required to be humanely euthanized um, because they've been been stuck in the fence or similar, then obviously the use of firearms in in that situation is is permitted. Which is contradictory, really, and unclear for some of the groups that have received this, this letter from DPIRD, which they say came from nowhere. They say there hasn't been any consultation. So the, the rule is you're not allowed to use a firearm, but then if you need to, you can. So... Does that not seem a bit grey and a bit confusing? Oh, look, I, I think we have to be um, a bit pragmatic in, in these cases. You know, there's a very clear remit for the department to ensure that there is no risk to, to human life. And, um, you know, obviously firearms are a high-risk activity and the department will take any action that's necessary um, to ensure that we are managing risk associated with the, the use of, of firearms. Obviously, the you know, if there are situations that really require it, then that's different, um, you know, and, and we expect people holding permits, you know, to be ob- obviously be able to, you know, to use their, their judgment. There's a big difference between humanely euthanising an animal in, in very close quarters to, you know, to firing shots along the fence and in the reserve. Why is the department allowing mining companies and utility companies to travel the fence? If I go and drive on it as an average citizen, I'm liable for a fine. It's meant to be, my understanding is it's meant to be a biosecurity asset or a biosecurity tool. Correct me if I'm wrong there. So why allow particularly mining companies to travel along it? Yeah, look, that's correct. It, it is a biosecurity asset. Um, it is also a, a state asset and uh, utilities and, and mining companies using, using not the fence, obviously, but the, the reserve set aside for the fence is done under agreement and under conditions to ensure that the integrity of the fence isn't compromised by that activity. You sent a letter to biosecurity groups saying that um, within that 20 metre reserve out from the fence, the use of firearms isn't allowed. Are people allowed to set dog traps along that in that reserve as well? The ruling that we've made is only around the use of, of firearms. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if, we're, if people are putting traps within the reserve, that's going to increase their need to use firearms within the reserve. So again, it's somewhere where we would expect people to use, you know, common, common sense as to where they set those traps. 
The department is working with recognised biosecurity groups around any implications of, of the new conditions. You know, obviously there are only a, a small number of groups that are, are impacted and, and we work directly with those groups on a, on a day-to-day basis on all these sorts of matters. Mia Carbon is the Executive Director of Biosecurity at the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. She was explaining to Joe Prendergast why DPIRD has implemented changes to the rules around firearm usage along the State Barrier Fence Reserve. And in response to that comment from Stuart McEwen that the department hadn't prosecuted anyone for trespassing on the barrier fence, Mia Carbon says the department focuses its compliance effort according to biosecurity risk. So unless someone is posing a biosecurity threat, it's unlikely they'll be prosecuted. What are your thoughts on this one? Can you see why dogger Stuart McEwen is upset? Do you think he and other doggers should be allowed to shoot and trap along the state barrier fence? Or do you agree with the decision that's been made based on trying to ensure no one gets shot or caught in a trap? If you want to text in, that number again is 0448 922604. A new case of Varroa, this time in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, is raising big questions about the origin of the outbreak in Australia. The hive was infested by mites when the bees were moved before the outbreak was discovered at the port of Newcastle. David Clawton reports. Varroa is a devastating pest that can decimate hives and reduce honey production significantly. Genomic testing shows that the mites originated in Central America, but it's not clear how they got into Australia. This latest case has proven that the port of Newcastle probably wasn't the point of entry. The Department of Primary Industries Incident Controller, Lloyd King, told Dan Cox and Jenny Bates on ABC Newcastle about this latest case. We're still trying to determine exactly what's occurred. Uh, But we believe that, um, like this person has a close relationship with with a previously known infested premises. Um, Now that we've actually gone out there and and tested that person's hives again and they've turned up to be infested, we've found out there are actually hives that were moved from that known infested premises in the last eight or nine months that we didn't previously know about. So does that mean that there was Varroa at that first property before the detection at the port of Newcastle? Oh, oh yes. Um, so we are, our sentinel hives in Newcastle in late June uh, detected the incursion. We've since been swimming upstream to try and work out where that incursion originated. So we, we know that the first place that we found it was in the port of Newcastle. We're still pulling together how it got to that site where we first found it and then from where it's came. So the, right. the more surveillance we do in the purple zone and the, the more information we've gathered from the red zone through interviewing people gives us a very firm idea that that definitely wasn't the point of entry. Yeah, so ongoing surveillance will actually fill in the picture for us. Right. That has changed my impression of this whole situation, that we now know that before the 22nd of June there was Varroa in the Hunter before it was identified at the port of Newcastle on the 22nd of June. So do we know where it came from yet or is it likely to have come from interstate or how does this happen? Well, we know it's not likely to have come from interstate because all of our our other state partners have also been doing a lot of surveillance as well. So we, we know that it somehow got into the lower hunter sometime in the last nine months 
And we, we actually have a genetic sequence of the mite that tells us that it originated from somewhere around Central America because this thing originally came from sort of Japan, Korea, that part of the world. But uh, yeah, we still haven't pieced together exactly what the date was of the entry. But the more surveillance we do and the more cooperation we get from the bee industry, the more confident we are that we've actually got the thing contained and we're well on the way to eradicating. New South Wales Apiarist Association President Steve Fuller told Kim Honan this is a worrying case, but he hasn't given up on eradicating the pests from Australia. At least we know it's a, it's a traceable link, which is good. The sad part, though, is this has already been surveillanced already with alcohol washers and now it's actually showing up positive to varroa mite. So, gee whiz, it makes me wonder, or it makes the industry really scared of how many other ones out there with alcohol washers that have been clean that now need to go back through and have motorcycle strips in them. The state's Agriculture Minister, Dougald Saunders, told Michael Condon the government is extending the red zone for controlling the outbreak and more bees will have to be euthanised. It's not bees that are flying between right. hives necessarily. It's normally that people have moved to hive and it may not show up straight away as being infected, but that's why we have to keep doing that testing. And, and you know, that's why in some of the areas that will, um, that will come back, it'll take a couple of years because we need to keep retesting and making sure that nothing has slipped through the net. New South Wales Agriculture Minister Dougald Saunders ending that report by David Clawton. And this text just in from someone called Cross Ches. We need doggers like Stewie. Without him, we wouldn't be in sheep. I can show photos to Deep Herd of dog attacks. Get out of your office and come and see the real world. And another text, there's no name on this one. All I can hear is another clown behind a desk making decisions for boots on the ground. Make sure you don't forget to tell me who you are and where you're tuning in from. And thanks to Rick, the Aram Lily Sprayer in Margaret River, for texting me in some reassurance. It's great to hear from you, Rick. You're with Georgia Hargreaves, the Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And time for the news headlines. Jackie Lynch is here with me. Hello, Jackie. Thanks, Georgia. Thousands of nurses and midwives have defied an order by the industrial umpire and are rallying outside Parliament House. They're wearing their work uniforms and holding signs demanding a 5% pay rise and they've booed the government's claims they are putting patient safety at risk. Premier Mark McGowan has labelled the strikes unlawful. The West Australian Health Department has recorded 15 COVID-19-related deaths dating back to mid-October. The figures are contained in WA's Health's latest report, which shows the state has identified 10,520 new cases in the past week. As of yesterday afternoon, there were 6,679 known active cases in the state and 195 people in hospital with the virus. And an inquiry into Scott Morrison's secret acquisition of five ministries has revealed he sought advice on him pointing himself to at least one additional portfolio. During the pandemic, the the then Prime Minister secretly appointed himself Joint Minister to five portfolios without the knowledge of most ministers involved. It's now been revealed he also sought advice on appointing himself as a Joint Minister for Agriculture, Environment and Water. Thank you for the update, Jackie. 28 past 12. The Country Hour with Georgia Hargreaves on ABC Radio WA.
I think there are a few places that might get some rainfall over the weekend. Let's find out if that's correct. Angeline Prasad is today's duty forecaster for the Bureau of Meteorology. Got my tongue twisted there. Hi, Angeline. It sounds like some severe thunderstorms are forecast for some regions. So what will that mean for the Southwest Land Division? Um, good afternoon, Georgia. Yes, um, in fact, there is a, a severe weather warning, a severe thunderstorm warning out for some damaging winds uh, across the goldfields and Eucla. And over the weekend and early next week, we are forecasting the risk of severe thunderstorms across the east and north of the state. Um, Weather is actually looking pretty good across the southwest land division this weekend. So it's the last, you know, weekend for for spring, and it looks like it's going to be pretty good. And how much of that rain and thunderstorms will be in the north of the state? Um, So across the Kimberley, we've already seen um, some heavy falls uh, from recent thunderstorm activity. And over the next uh, three or four days, we could potentially see on a daily basis another 20 to 40 millimetres from the slow-moving thunderstorms, um, potentially getting up to 40 to 60 millimetres in some isolated areas. It's not just a risk of heavy falls throughout Georgia. We are also going to see that risk of damaging winds and potential um, hail as well with these thunderstorms. And will the storms make their way to the far eastern forecast districts? Yes. So these thunderstorms are currently affecting the gold fields and Eucla, but they are expected to move into the interior of the state um, uh, tonight and into, into tomorrow. And you mentioned some warnings already. Are there any other warnings today, Angeline? Um, so we have got a... Um, a minor flood warning uh, for the Fitzroy River. Um, so um, these thunderstorms have uh, managed to produce enough uh, water to cause some minor flooding issues across the Fitzroy River. Uh, and apart from that, we've got a, um, a strong warning out for Perth local waters, Ningaloo, Gascoigne and the Perth coast. Not for today, though, from, from tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much for taking us through those details, Angeline. And Richard Hudson is here in the studio with me. Richard, welcome to Bunbury. Yeah, just thought I'd give you the loudest. Ooh. Just that I'd give you the uh, the loudest entrance ever by uh, slamming the the door. So apologies about that. <laughs> no, nice to be down in uh, sunny old Bunbury. Well, that yeah. was pouring down earlier, wasn't it? It was. We did get a bit of a drop this morning. But uh, for the last twenty four hours, up until uh, nine a.m. this morning, again, same story as we've had for the last few weeks. The majority of the rain has been in the Kimberley. So. Campbellin, 15 mils. Country Downs, 7 mils over two days. Dampier Downs Airstrip, 14. Fitzroy Crossing Airport, 29. Fossil Downs, 26. Gibb River, 8. Go-Go Station, 13. Jubilee Downs, 33. Kununurra at the Deep Herd Station, 16. Lansdowne, 42. Leopold Downs, 32. Margaret River Airstrip, 7. Marion Downs, 28. Mount Barnett, 31, Mount Krause 30, Mount Winifred 19, Old Mornington Homestead 52, Siddons Creek 32, Theta 39, Winjana Gorge 8 and Yulumbu had 27. And then nowhere else in the northern and eastern forecast districts seem to have got much of a drop except for in the goldfields. Edgardina had five, that was about it. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, there was hardly anything around except in the southwest where Cape Naturalist had nine and Quorum up seven. But apart from that, I don't think it even got above around about one mil. 
But, uh, Georgia, as you've been hearing all week, there's been plenty of rain about in the Kimberley, not just this week, but previous weeks as well, and particularly in the central parts. Calyuta Station sits about halfway between Derby and Fitzroy Crossing, and it's had more than 210 millimetres in just 48 hours, and a bit more has fallen even since then. Calyuta's assistant manager is Camille Camp, and she says it's actually been one of the best starts to the wet season she can remember. It is a bit earlier than what we normally would get. Like, normally it's December the storms start coming, especially this this amount of rain. Like our average is 450 mils and we've just gotten, you know, 200 in the last two days. So it is a lot of rain and, yeah, a couple of weeks earlier than what we've ever had before. And so what does it mean for you to have this rain so early? Is it helpful? Is it a hindrance? How do you feel about it? It's always good because, like, all the water holes are full and if we didn't get rain again until, you know, January, February, we'd be absolutely fine. Like we wouldn't have to check waters or anything. We were planning on mustering next week. Those plans are probably going to have to change because at the moment we can't drive around at all. So it's changed our plans, but in the long run, it's going to be good for the country. And yeah, not having to worry about water is always a good thing. Calyuda Station's Camille Camp speaking about the 200 plus mills that have fallen at Calyuda Station over the past few days. She was speaking with Steph Sinclair. And a few more people are keen to have a say on the state barrier fence and shooting. This text in from Truckee Robbo in WA. Anyone who wants to travel the state barrier fence should only be allowed to do so with a permit. The dog shooters should be a part of the permit process. That way they know who's on the fence and when. Thanks for that text, Robbo. And this other text, just another academic that's destroying this country. She talks about common sense. Well, she needs to go out and do the job for a couple of weeks and see where her common sense is. That text from Bruce. Uh, Thanks so much for that, Bruce. Remember the number, if you want to text in, is 0448 922604. Let's head to the Kimberley now, where the life of much-loved livestock agent Todd Walsh is being celebrated this weekend with a huge event planned in Broome. The event has been organised to pay tribute to Todd, who sadly passed away last month at the age of 40 after a battle with cancer. Friend, colleague and one of the event's organisers, Andrew Stewart, says a huge community effort has gone into giving Walshy a fitting send-off. Oh, Todd. There's only one Todd. Todd came to the Kimberleys over 10 years ago. He's worked for um, Elders. He's worked for Nutrien. He worked for us at Northern Rural Supplies and then back to Nutrien right at the, right at the end. So he had known Todd for a long time and... He's just one of those characters that, yeah, everybody has a Walshy story. And this weekend we're going to celebrate his life that was cut way too short. He was livestock extraordinaire, life of the party. And as I said before, it's just a tragedy that we're talking about him in the past tense because, yeah, it's just sad and devastating for for his family that's left behind. So. You mentioned there he was the life of the party. Can you tell us a bit about the party and the celebration that you're, you're having for him in his honour this weekend? Oh, it's fair to say Todd was always first there and last to leave. He was uh, 
yeah, as I said, Todd just made to always feel good. He loved life and he lived it to the to his capacity. And yeah, it, this weekend is all about that. So his his beautiful wife Jackie, he's got three young children, Sam, Grace, and Maggie all under the age of seven, mind you, um, that are left behind. And this weekend is is to celebrate his life and to, to raise as much money as we possibly can for the Walsh Foundation. We formed this um, after Todd passed. It's going to be a, yeah, a, a really good send-off. And we, we had his uh, funeral in Orange there some two and a half weeks ago now, so... Jackie wanted to give everybody in the Kimleys an opportunity to come and say goodbye, and that's what this is going to be. So we've, uh, thanks to the Rowie and multiple other people, which will all be mentioned on the day, we've, we're having a, uh, a weekend for Walsh, it's called, and um, Saturday's the big day. We've got a, a live auction, 15 lots that are all there online for people to look at. But the big one going forward, Steph, it will all be about the online auction. At this stage, we've got something like 40 plus items all online. Auctions Plus has kindly donated their platform. The auction will roll from Sunday lunchtime, WA time, and run till Friday the following week. And there are some incredible prizes all on offer. And it's all with a view of making money for for Jackie and the kids and the foundation going forward. Northern Rural Supplies Agency Principal Andrew Stewart, he was speaking to Steph Sinclair about an event happening in Broome this weekend in honour of the late Todd Walsh. And if you're looking for more information or some tickets for the weekend for Walshie, you can head to the Northern Rural Supplies Facebook page. 21 minutes to one o'clock on the country hour and if you're an orchardist yourself or you've just got a few fruit trees in your backyard you'll be all too familiar with the damage birds can do fruit west chair and lister has been growing apples and pears in manjumup for over 30 years that's manjumup in wa's southwest region she says the problem of birds is getting worse This particular season, we have a very persistent flock that fly into our orchard at least three times a day. So at least three times a day, we are having to move those animals on, those birds on. Wow. And so how are you doing that? What bird control are you using at the moment? We have a motorbike and large horns and we have bird fright that we let off out of a shotgun. All of those are expensive methods, but the problem is if you allow the birds to settle in your orchard at any one time, they're very, very smart creatures. They remember where they've had a good experience, so they just keep coming back. So our policy is that we move them on all the time and in the end that we hope that they will get the message, well, this is not a particularly smart place to keep coming to. Mm, And they're certainly a smart animal. And how essential do you think it is to have protective netting on your orchard these days? I think in the future, all orchards will be netted. Mm. I'm absolutely just about positively sure of that. And in fact, the federal government and the state government have had a couple of um, schemes going. Unfortunately, uh, the last scheme has just been fully subscribed and as orchardists, we would really appreciate if there was another round of funding made available for people to be able to install hail netting. I mean, the cost is really very, very high. 
depending on the system that you use and the uh, type of uprights you use, it is over $50,000 a hectare. Manjamup apple and pear grower Anne Listar. She was just talking about the issue of birds in her orchard in the state's southwest. And as you just heard, installing protective netting over your orchard can, course, can cost north of $50,000 a hectare. Well, one southwest orchardist has been using lasers to keep the birds away. Sam Lichardello grows apples, pears and stone fruit in Donnybrook, which is around 200 k's south of Perth. And he says the lasers are so efficient that last season he was able to pick an extra 70 bins of fruit. But birds are a continuing issue. I can't afford to sit in the ute all day and blow air horns or something or shoot. For every one I shoot, four come back. So with this here, it gives us a little bit of breathing space. When we first installed it last year, it's a very strange thing. Like, there'll be birds today, you install it, you start it, and then there's no birds. And it's, it's so noticeable to see there's not a, a single parrot, nothing. How the laser works is you, you set it up in a position through your orchard, okay? And it throws a laser beam out that the birds don't like, okay? Now, during the day, you don't see that unless you're looking directly at it. But the birds sense it and they don't like it. So, for example, if you've got a few blocks in the one area, you can create patterns within those blocks to scare the birds. For example, if you have block A, B and C, you might have four or five patterns within block A that might go north-south, east-west, diagonally, and then the same in B and the same in C. And then you scramble them. And so has it proven to be effective as bird control for you? For for us, we've only used it last summer was our first season with it, and we had an excellent result. The property that we're using, we have a lot of pressure with parrots, and our yield was up by 90 bins in these two blocks. Um, There was still some damage, and it's so visible to see. uh, You can almost tell when you've got as much bird pressure as I had out there, uh, parts of the orchard where the laser does not go. Wow. Okay? okay, so if there's a void of a couple of metres throughout your pattern, they will learn that void and you'll see some slight damage in there. So you've got to be really uh, on top of it and monitoring to see where the pressure is and adjust your programs to suit and keep the birds on the hop. Right, so they actually learn and eventually recognise. They will learn the sequence. Way. And with my experience from last year, seven to 10 days, they learned the sequence of that pattern. So I scrambled it and I'd change it and then they have to sit back and learn it again. And by the time they just about learned that sequence, I was in before that and I scrambled it again and and did that throughout the whole summer and they were confused. So how does this compare to using netting, for example, for bird control? 
Netting, it's a completely different thing. Look, if uh, today you're putting in a new block of orchard, you would plan it for fixed netting, okay? Uh, the orchard that I'm looking after there with the uh, laser, it's old existing orchard where to put fixed netting is not suitable. So your boundary space is not enough and so on. You lose, you have to pull out trees to accommodate uh, your poles and your wires and anchor points. So both have place, I believe. You know, netting is very, very good and cost opposed to the laser is a completely different thing. But the result, netting would be 100% protection. Whereas a laser is very high, but not 100%. So roughly how much does one of these lasers cost? Uh, the brand that we use here is for the laser, for all the wiring and excellent support, tech support from um, uh, the, the guys who sell it. it. It comes through Muir's. So the support and installation, everything, you're looking at $20,000. If you've got mains powers, that rate could be a little bit different because you can hook straight into the power. If you're out in rural area and you're in your property and you've got no power and you've got to go solar, well, you have to add a few bob on top mm. for panels and battery pack and things like that. Donnybrook orchardist Sam Lichardello just talking about the laser machine he's been using to keep the birds away from the fruit on his trees. And if you want to read more about this story, you can head online to the ABC Rural website, just do a search for bird and laser, and you'll find the story. Many farms and grazing properties in remote parts of the country have long generated their own power off the grid due to their remoteness. But in central Queensland, relatively new farms have started up in semi-urban areas, choosing to be off-grid from the get-go. ABC Capricornia's Katrina Bevan found out the reasons why. They come through them pretty good. <laughs> they do, don't they? Yep. Roxanne Hinton is getting ready to harvest finger limes on her farm near Emu Park on the Capricorn Coast. Yeah, that one for your lunchbox. <laughs> the farm, which was set up in 2018, has 1,500 trees and operates with solar power completely off-grid. Roxanne and her husband Luke opted for the setup for both independence and cost. So if we went down the road of tapping into our power, it would have cost us about $60,000, um, give or take. Um, we probably saved, I think we spent about $30,000 with the setup and a lot of generosity too, of a lot of friends and family helping with that too. But our savings were, was incredible, so we're very happy with that road we went down. There's a diesel generator on the property that usually kicks in around 10 o'clock at night when they have events, which are usually weddings. So this initially was our production shed and it was sitting there not doing much while our fruit was growing. So we decided to jump on another angle and um, do weddings. So we are booked out for the next two years. So we will be building another another shed exactly like this for our production. Not far down the road in Yapoon, Ross O'Reilly's High Valley Dawn permaculture farm is also self-sufficient in energy. We wanted to be off-grid. We intended to be off-grid just for those reasons, you know, for food security and energy, but also to educate. Well, we've got our uh, four dams along the valley floor. We solar pump up on the hill. 
got three big tanks up there, 25,000 litre tanks. And then we use the, the law of gravity to distribute that through our gardens and food forests and bush tucker forests. Melanie and Rob Leather run around 5,000 cattle across three properties in central Queensland. One property has always been off-grid, out of necessity because of its remote location. The other two properties, while on-grid, have a large number of solar pumps. They pump anywhere from 60 to 100,000 litres of water a day, of distances up to four kilometres. The work that we've done around the water infrastructure and particularly the solar systems and um, being able to, to fence those dams or put solar systems on them with holding tanks and troughs, it's going to really make us a lot more resilient during these periods of dry that we're getting um, because we are getting more extreme climatic events. Going off-grid is something more farmers are considering, according to the Queensland Farmers Federation. The group's energy project manager, Andrew Chamberlain, says the body has done lots of work in the last few years looking for ways its members could save on energy, as well as investigating microgrids. Fundamentally, I think with the electricity networks, uh, a great piece of infrastructure, um, and I think it offers those opportunities for farmers to share power and not have to invest in all the infrastructure they need to generate all their own power all the time which which they need if they go off grid but it is difficult to convince farmers when they're facing increasing charges and and reliability issues to to stay on the grid and and wait for those models to come forward but you know we've got we've been working on projects that um, develop evidence to show that those models will work we just need to work with our networks and and regulators to sort of allow those models to start to be adopted. The federal government says it's committed 20 billion dollars to modernise the electricity grid and its Clean Energy Finance Corporation has invested more than $300 million in 20 agriculture projects. Katrina Bevan ending that report and you can watch that story in full on Landline on the ABC at 12.30 this Sunday afternoon or if you miss it, you can catch up later on iView. This is the Country Hour with Georgia Hargreaves on ABC Radio throughout Western Australia. A Victorian Highland cattle breeder has sold a 14-month-old heifer for $67,500. That's a new world record for the breed. The man with a smile on his face is Glenn Hasty, who's been breeding Highland cattle in Gisborne for 26 years. He says the jaw-dropping price has even got people talking back in Scotland where the breed comes from because it's twice the amount of the previous record. Out of this world for us, um, certainly going to look after uh, our next lot of imported genetics and put up a shed for us. The top price went to 67500 for a 14-month-old heifer, uh, which is a, out of a bull that we've bred and by a cow that we've bred. Um, really, really nice heifer. Still, we weren't expecting that sort of price. The average price across the six lots was 38000 And interestingly enough, the previous sale that we had six months ago, the average price was 13000 uh, which we thought was amazing back then. But watching the online sale, watching the bids come in, over the 48 hours, seeing them go up uh, within, you know, the, the first few hours to, to figures that were, were beyond our previous sale, we thought something special was going to happen. And then during the last probably half an hour, um, uh, the people who had the money and were interested certainly started um, competing 
seriously. What's happened in the last six months to drive that price up? It's a good question and, and I wasn't expecting this. In fact, I would have been happy with similar prices to what we got six months ago. Uh, what's happened, I guess any of this is really just supply and demand and uh, it comes down to scarcity of good quality registered um, Highland females of, well for us uh, they're from fully imported bloodlines so um, no other breed knowingly in there They and I guess that perception of the breed um, as being something different and just not your normal black Angus that you have out in the paddock um, I guess the tree change from COVID for people over the last couple of years just culminated in more and more interest in such breeds. Um, their temperament is exquisite. and I mean, they're just really, really quiet animals. So I think people who are less experienced with cattle are more interested in highlands than they would be in the other more commercial breeds. Interestingly enough, the embryo side of things, uh, what we were selling embryos for suddenly becomes pretty bloody cheap compared with 67000 for an actual cow. So since the sale, there's certainly been a considerable amount of interest in the embryos that we have in our tank at the moment. How much generally is an embryo? They might vary between 1000 and two or 3000 What did your contacts in Scotland say when you contacted them and told them that you'd sold a heifer for 67000 Were they flawed at being a breed from Scotland? Uh, yeah, no, f- flabbergasted. One of the uh, in-calf heifers that we sold for 57000 was by the most recent bull that we'd imported, so I let that fellow know he's an ex-president of the Highland Cattle Society over there and yeah he was astounded and genuinely you know wanted me to let him know more and more about it as much as he could and then he contacted me again about 12 hours later he'd obviously gone and spoken to somebody and it sounds like yeah he wants an article and some uh, images for the Scottish farmer, uh, uh, the main country newspaper over there as well. So it's it's generated a fair bit of interest over there. Glenn Hasty from Bansley Highland Cattle in Gisborne, Victoria. He was speaking to Annie Brown. And that world record heifer is on her way to New South Wales. You can read more of this story online on the ABC Rural website to have a look at that world record Highland heifer. This week on Landline, farming off the grid. We use roughly about 17,000 kilowatts uh, of energy a year, uh, which equates to you know, four and a half, five thousand dollars know, electricity cost that we save every year. And celebrating the work of country creators. I think it's about making something and sharing it with other people, and it brings people together. That's Landline Sunday, 12:30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the wool market is up this week with the Eastern Market Indicator up 24 cents to finish at 1,256 cents a kilogram clean. And the Western Indicator is up 29 cents to finish at 1,408 cents a kilogram clean. Danny Burkett's been keeping an eye on proceedings. Hello, Danny. Any idea why the market picked up this week? Well, it's best if you overlay the exchange rate to the wool market in the last month. There is a direct opposing correlation. As we've seen, the exchange rate drop, wool market has risen, and vice versa. And that played out very similar this week. 
Fremantle was the place to sell wool this week as we topped the three centres with an average of $9.14 greasy across the board. Or if you took that to a bale rate, $1,630 a bale for every bale traded over the floor in Fremantle. 17 micron were quoted firm at 2,000 cents clean. However, I would suggest that you they were 50 to 60 clean dearer. Just volume stopped the quote being produced. 18 micron up 60, closing at 17.60. 19 micron up 50, closing at 15.50. 20 micron plus 25, closing at 14.20. 21s were up 30. 22s were up 25, closing at 13.30 and 12.80 respectively. If you had a 68% yielding wool, 185 kilo bar weight sour merino fleece wool, 18 micron would have returned $2,210 a bale. 19, 1,950, 20 micron, 1,785, 21s, 1,670, 22s at 16.10. We look at the pieces and bellies, we had the fine end of the market also up 60, so it was great to see the combing market operate in unison. In other words, when the fleece is rising, pieces and bellies are going with it. Always a very good sign for the wool market. We look at the medium types across in the pieces and bellies, they were up 40 again very similar to the fleece wool. Lock stains, crutchings, fully firm for the week. Again, lamb's wool, if you have what they would term washing at 0.1.2, sound market on the lambs. If you have VM anything higher than that, the discounts are starting to be applied and starting to increase as we move week for week. Okay, and who was buying this week, Danny? We had Endeavour Wool Exports, and this is for the Merino fleece wool across the country through the three centres, just shy of 17%. Tech Wool Trading, just shy of 12.5%. Mellower, Chinese firm, good to see them in the top three, 12%. PJ Morris, 11.5%. As I've said prior, if you were to take those top four buys and look at destination of origin, I would suggest the vast majority of that wool is heading to China. Again, if we look through the crossbred, tech wool trading, third largest buyers, merino skirtings, tech wool second largest buyers. But good to see a good spread of buyers. And I will say good to see TNU not present in those top buyers because they have been a major force if we look back in the last six weeks. And what's in store for next week, Danny? So we have Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. We have 38,295 bales allocated for the sale. Sydney is designated a super fine sale. So just given the wool market this week with a little bit of pressure, hopefully that flows in with the limited amount of top makers between Fremantle and Melbourne. Thank you for taking us through those details, Danny. And that's all we have time for on the Country Hour today. Thank you so much for your company. Thanks for going easy on me. It is now time for the news.